Can you name a famous opera house that has been burnt to the ground throughout its history, and each time has risen from the ashes and remains a hallowed spot for opera lovers today? Find out more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The answer to our quiz is La Fenice in Venice, a historic company that has, as the name suggests, risen like a phoenix and rebuilt its home opera house time and again. This historic opera spot is one of the first stops on the Metropolitan Opera Guild's upcoming Treasures of the Mediterranean Cruise from September 30th to October 9th, 2020. I'm Stuart Holt, and my co-host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, will be presenting a series of lectures and programming in conjunction with onboard concerts and excursions as travelers take in opera and culture in Italy, Croatia, and Greece. Cabins are still available, so there is still a chance to join her on the high seas. This episode features Naomi giving you a taste of what is to come with the Metropolitan Opera Guild travel program. The cruise begins in one of the most romantic cities in the world, Venice, Italy. Not only is Venice known for its unique layout of winding pedestrian streets, a maze of canals traversed by gondoliers, fusion of different architectural styles, and stunning sunsets, it is also a hugely important city in the history of Western music, especially in the realm of opera. Venice is actually the city that pioneered the idea of opera being a form of public entertainment. The Teatro San Cassiano was the first opera house to offer ticket sales to the general public, opening its doors in 1637. Before this, opera was largely confined to being performed and enjoyed within the royal courts and private homes of wealthy patrons. But when the San Cassiano opened, anyone who could afford a ticket could attend and ticket prices spanned a spectrum from cheap seats and standing room all the way to private boxes. The Teatro San Cassiano is no longer standing today. Its original building, located not far from the iconic Rialto Bridge, was demolished in 1807. But the company was extremely influential in its time, and was the first to bring the art form to the general public. By the end of the 1600s, over 10 opera houses or companies had sprung up in Venice, and wealthy merchants and aristocratic families all wanted in on this new industry. Not all of these companies or opera houses established in this era survive today, but many do, 
including the Teatro Goldoni and the Teatro Malibran. And another company that was established a little bit later, in 1792, is extremely important in the history of Italian opera during the Bel Canto era, and it is actually one of our first excursions of the cruise, the historic La Fenice. The name La Fenice is actually strongly tied to the history of the building itself and the company that ran it. La Fenice means the phoenix, a mythical bird that is continually reborn, consumed by flames, and then rising from the ashes. The opera house and company was first formed in the wake of a fire that destroyed another leading opera house in Venice, the Teatro San Benedetto, in 1774. And this is the fire that started it all, fire number one. Feeling the loss of the high-quality opera provided by the Teatro San Benedetto, a group of wealthy patrons got together to form a new company and build a new opera house. Construction on the new house began in 1790, and the company opened its doors in May of 1792, under the name La Fenice. It was quickly established as the leading opera house in Venice and produced the world premiere performances of Italy's greatest opera composers of the 19th century. The trio of bel canto composers, Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti, all had operas make world premieres at La Fenice, and in the second half of the 1800s, composer Giuseppe Verdi had a long association with La Fenice, with operas like Ernani, La Traviata, Regoletto, and Simon Bocanegra all making their world premiere on that stage. There is even a story about Verdi trying to keep the famous aria La Donna e Mobile a secret as long as possible, only giving it to the tenor to learn days before the premiere, because he did not want all the gondoliers and street performers and organ grinders of Venice singing it before the opera had even had its world premiere. Here it is, sung by the legendary Luciano Pavarotti. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nietzsche has continued to play an important role in the opera industry and has boasted some pretty important world premieres in the 20th century as well, including Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress, Benjamin Britten's The Turn of the Screw, and Prokofiev's The Fiery Angel, among many others. And despite being destroyed by fire two more times in its history, once in 1836 and once in 1996, you can still attend the opera at La Fenice today. The theatre was rebuilt on the same spot following as much of the original designs as possible. Reopened to the public since the early 2000s, a backstage tour of La Fenice is a must-see for opera lovers, and it is one of my personal favourite backstage tours that I've ever taken. On our first excursion, you get to see the amazing auditorium, learn about the history of the rebuilding of the theatre, sit in the imperial box, and explore La Fenice's exhibition on the amazing Maria Callas, who made her operatic debut at La Fenice singing in Wagner's Tristan und Isolde when she was just 24 years old. To give you a small taste of this history, here is Callas singing the Liebestode from Tristan, recorded in 1949, just two years after her world premiere, capturing a moment at the very beginning of Callas's ascent to operatic stardom.
course, be a series of concerts on board the ship, and although I don't know the exact program lineup just yet, it is still a little early for that, I know that each program will feature opera excerpts from the works of Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Verdi, and Puccini, the Italian masters. And there will be a series of pre-performance lectures paired with the onboard concerts. Now, I won't give everything away now, but here are a few introductory facts about some of the composers to give you a sense of the kind of music you will be treated to on the voyage. Starting with Rossini. Known for his sparkling comedies, Rossini's music is the perfect vehicle for a singer to show off all kinds of virtuosic twists and turns, with melodic lines that catered toward public taste at the time for embellishment and ornamentation. Here is an aria you might recognize, and it's a real showpiece for mezzo-soprano. Una voce poco fa, from Rossini's Il Barbieri di Sevilla, or The Barber of Seville. In this moment, Rosina is writing a letter to Count Almaviva, except in this moment she doesn't know that he is a count. She has fallen in love with him, knowing him only as Lindoro. She sings of how she is determined to find a way for the two of them to be together, and how she will be sweet and kind and gentle as people expect her to be, but also clever and act with a sharp mind in order to finally win what she wants. This is mezzo-soprano Miriam Albano, who will be one of our guest artists on the ship. Donizetti was a contemporary of Rossini, although slightly younger, and was at the pinnacle of his career during the height of the bel canto era. He composed over 70 operas, and in some cases he set a record for turning out a new opera in just a matter of weeks. While Donizetti composed some comedic operas that are beloved staples of the opera canon today, like Le Lésir d'Amore and La Fille du Régiment, the majority of his operas tended toward more serious, dramatic, or tragic subjects. 
Think of operas like Anna Bolena, Maria Stuarda, and Roberto Devereux, his famous Tudor Queen operas that have experienced a resurgence in popularity in recent years. Like Rossini, Donizetti composed in a way that gave singers the opportunity to show off the beauty of the voice, that is, after all, the literal meaning of the term bel canto, beautiful singing, as well as whatever vocal improvisation skills a singer brought to the table. One of the most famous scenes that allows a singer to show off both the ornamentation written for them by Donizetti and their own improvisatory cadenza is the mad scene from Lucia di Lamamore. After being forced to marry a man she does not love, pushed beyond the limits of sanity, Lucia murders her groom in their bedchamber shortly after the wedding, and descends the staircase to the ongoing party below in a hallucinatory state, her wedding dress covered in blood. Here, the assembled party-goers watch in shock as Lucia hallucinates about being with Edgardo, the man she really loves, and the music recalls moments from their love duet earlier in the opera. When she gets to the cadenza, the orchestra pauses, and in a completely unaccompanied moment, the singer improvises, fusing their own musicality, creativity, and unique vocal ability into the expression of Lucia's psychological torment. Here is the Metropolitan Opera's most recent Lucia, Pretty Yende, bringing this character to life. Sulla fonte 
While Verdi began his musical life in the bel canto era as a young composer, surrounded by the works of Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti, he is known for taking Italian opera in a decidedly more dramatic direction, moving away from highly ornamented singing and towards vocal writing driven by the demands of the drama. Verdi's focus on drama led to a slow and steady evolution of musical style, which generally manifested itself in two different ways, moving away from a libretto or text of the opera strictly set in poetic meter, which was the norm, and generally demanding a bigger, more dramatic sound in the voice, stripping away the practice of added superfluous ornamentation and bringing the power and intensity of the drama to life through the vocal lines. Verdi pushed for text that sounded more natural, which allowed for his music to be more through-composed, creating longer scenes with music that was not broken up into short chunks of recitative and aria. Instead, he wanted more natural-sounding lines, dialogue that melded together with the needs of the drama. And because he wanted the drama to be communicated, his vocal writing demanded more intensity and a bigger sound than we find in the bel canto era. He didn't necessarily want the focus to be on a pretty sound, because his characters were not always pretty people. He wanted a sound that conveyed the core of the character, be it conniving, ugly, jealous, rotten, delicate, elegant, poise, power-hungry, or outright evil. We know that Verdi loved Shakespeare, and his first opera to directly draw upon a Shakespeare play was the play that superstitious audiences, actors, actresses, directors, and pretty much anyone working in theatre, still do not speak by name while inside a theatre, unless they are saying it because it is specifically called for in the script during a performance or a rehearsal. And that is the Scottish play M-A-C-B-E-T-H. Here is another singer who will be a special guest performer on our cruise, Beatrice Urien Monzon, singing one of Lady Macbeth's famous monologue moments, when she plots to help the prophecy of Macbeth becoming king move along as quickly as possible, even if it means killing anyone who stands in their way. Oh, <laughs> 
bit later, Puccini has come to define what we consider the era of verismo opera, meaning realism or naturalism, often manifested by telling the stories of everyday people, be it peasants, outcasts, the poor and downtrodden, or corrupt police chiefs, military men, spoiled aristocrats, or revolutionaries. Verismo focuses on the problems and struggles of the everyday person, which were often sordid, violent, political, and oftentimes controversial. The music incorporates sounds and ideas that paint a vivid sonic picture of the place the drama was set, from church bells to quotations of liturgical pieces, sounds of nature to folk-like melodies. And this emphasis on realism is paired with intense expressions of emotion, so that we, the audience, deeply feel the emotional journey of the characters. Puccini's output extends beyond the time of when the Verismo style was at its most popular, and there is a lot more to his musical genius than just Verismo opera. He was very inventive with his harmonic language, and he had an ability to weave together a seamless stream of music with motivic development, as well as an unparalleled gift for creating sweeping musical lines that unfurl and blossom with emotional intensity. Here is a short example of all of these elements of Puccini's compositional genius in one compact aria, and this features soprano Armel Cordoyon, who will be another one of our guest performers on board the ship. This is the beloved aria O mio babino caro from Gianni Schicchi, And this is the moment where the character of Loretta is begging her father to allow her and her beloved Renuccio to be married.
Now, I promise that the onboard concerts will have some wonderful excerpts for both tenor and baritone. We will have tenor Florian Cafiero and baritone Marc Scofoni as guest artists as well. So there will be a rich variety of excerpts and voices to enjoy, even if we can't hear them all in this episode. As the voyage continues, one of our ports of call will be Parga, Greece, a city known for its proximity to mythic locations and ancient oracles. There is a surprising link between the area of Parga and Opera, as the actual site that ancient Greeks believed to be the mouth of the River Styx is quite close by. The River Styx is where the dead began their journey to the underworld, which forms an important part of the Orpheus myth. And some of the earliest operas ever composed brought the story of Orpheus to life through music. Works like Jacopo Peri's Eurydice and L'Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. In both operas, the character of Orpheus, or Orfeo, descends to the underworld, crosses the river Styx, and uses the power of music to convince the king and queen of Hades to let Eurydice, or in Italian, Eurydice, to return with him to the land of the living. Here is a little bit of Monteverdi's setting of the myth, as Orfeo pleads with Caronte, a ferryman, to take him over the river Styx.
Not only did this ancient tale inspire the earliest opera composers, but it was also set as an opera in the early classical period by Christophe Philibaud Gluck in his work Orfeo ed Eurydice, and as a comic opera in 1858 by Jacques Offenbach called Orfeo ou Enfer. And this is the opera in which the music now most strongly associated with the can-can dance was first written for. This lively finale number from the opera was later co-opted by a cabaret troupe at the Moulin Rouge in Paris to accompany the can-can dance, and it's this pairing of the music with the dance that has made the music so popular today. While the can-can might sound far removed from ancient oracles and the underworld, it is part of a lineage of storytelling with roots in the Parga region. When we pull into port at Reggio di Calabria, we will be right on the toe of Italy's boot, with views of Sicily across the Straits of Messina and a whole host of historic places to be visited on our itinerary of excursions. The most well-known destination for history and art buffs is the Museo Nazionale del Magna Grecia, a museum dedicated to preservation of artifacts that have roots in ancient civilizations of the surrounding area, and several of the wonders here predate the Roman Empire. One of the most well-known works of art in the museum are the Riace Bronzes, two full-size bronze statues of bearded warriors that were discovered preserved and untouched for centuries underwater by a Roman chemist while he was on vacation snorkeling off the coast in 1972. They have only been fully restored since 2011, and part of our cruise excursions will be to see them on display at the museum. There are several other interesting links between classical music and this area of Italy to keep in mind as we explore panoramic views of the city. Looking north from Reggio di Calabria toward Scilla, the town of Palmi is not far in the distance, and that is the town where composer Francesco Celea was born. Although he's not as big of a name as Verdi or Puccini, his opera Adriana Le Couvreux, composed in 1902, has recently gained a resurgence of popularity on opera stages around the world. When Adriana made its Met Opera premiere in 1907, it featured none other than Enrico Caruso in one of the leading roles, whom Chilea had already worked with in previous operas when Caruso was at the beginning of his career. Here is a historic wax cylinder recording of Caruso singing the aria No Più Nobile from Adriana in 1902, with the composer himself accompanying Caruso on the piano. No, 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 no. 
Forwarding to our modern time, Reggio di Calabria is also the birthplace of Italian tenor Giuseppe Filianotti. Filianotti actually graduated from the Chilean Conservatory in his hometown, and he has gone on record as feeling a deep connection to Chilean's work. In fact, Filianotti actually discovered an aria amongst Chilean's manuscripts, originally composed but then cut from the opera L'Arla Siana. Originally composed, but then cut from his opera La La Siana. It was Filianotti who got Chilea's publisher, Casa Zonzonio, to reinstate or add the aria back into the official score, as an alternate option for the tenor. Here is Filianotti performing the aria in 2012, the world premiere performance of this long forgotten aria. One of the last major stops on our cruise is the city of Ravello on the Amalfi coast of Italy. 
Here, one of our excursions has an unexpected operatic connection, not in the realm of Italian opera, but in that of German romanticism. As you explore the gardens of Villa Ruffalo, you will literally be walking in the footsteps of the great Richard Wagner. During their travels along the Amalfi Coast, Wagner and his wife Cosima had to travel by mule in order to get to the quiet town of Ravello, where Wagner was struck by the beauty of the town and found a peaceful respite conducive to composing. It was during a stay at the Villa Ruffalo, with stunning views of the Tyrrhenian Sea in the background, that Wagner wrote Act II of his final opera, Parsifal. In his writings, he referred to the gardens of Villa Ruffalo as giving him the inspiration needed to write the scene in Klingsor's magic garden, when the flower maidens attempt to seduce Parsifal. Today, the town of Ravello hosts an annual music festival that draws performers, ensembles, and audiences from all over the world to this gem of a town. Established as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1997, a visit to Ravello makes it easy to imagine how Wagner and a host of other creative minds, from Edvard Grieg to Leonard Bernstein, Virginia Woolf to Sarah Teasdale, and D.H. Lawrence to Salvador Dali, all found inspiration in the landscape and culture of this historic Italian town. Here is a little bit of music from the magic garden scene in Parsifal, Our final port of call is Rome, and although there are no off-boat excursions planned as part of the cruise, extending your stay in Italy by a day or two could give you enough time to visit some opera-related sites before flying home. One could, of course, spend weeks exploring all the amazing historical aspects of Rome, but if you love opera and you only have time for a short visit, my recommendation is to visit the locales featured in the plot of one of the greatest Italian operas, Tosca by Giacomo Puccini. The story of Tosca is set in Rome, and it also had its premiere in Rome at the Teatro Constanzi. This opera house is still in use today and is the home of the Teatro dell'Opera di Roma. When Puccini composed Tosca, he was striving to recreate the sound of Rome within the score itself. 
For example, in order to make sure the church bells within the score sounded authentic, Puccini went to Rome himself and sat on the roof where he was staying and listened to the bells at different times of day. He meticulously notated the pitches he heard and integrated them into his opera. So to walk the streets of Rome is to take in the real place that inspired the story of this beloved work. You can visit the church, featured in Act 1, which is where we first meet Tosca and Cavaradossi, and it is also where the famous Te Deum finale happens, with Scarpia singing over the chorus. That church is Sant'Andrea della Valle. Scarpia's apartment, where all the action of Act 2 happens, is indicated in the score as being inside the Palazzo Farnese, an opulent Renaissance palace that you can take a tour through. Finally, both Tosca and Cavaradossi meet their tragic end at the Castel Sant'Angelo, near the Vatican. You can also take a tour of the Castel Sant'Angelo, but if you're not up for that, you can get an amazing view of the building from the many bridges that cross the river that runs through the center of the city. Now, this was only supposed to be a sneak peek at the kinds of lectures, learning opportunities, excursions, and musical entertainment that you can expect on the cruise, so I will have to cut myself off for now, but to end, we'll hear the finale of Tosca from the Met's 2011 production with Sandra Radvanovsky singing Tosca, a scene in which the drama of the music reflects the depths of the tragedy depicted and the imposing, overpowering nature of the Castel Sant'Angelo architecture.
thanks to Naomi for giving us a sneak peek on the upcoming opera and travel program. The Metropolitan Opera Guild travel program, Treasures of the Mediterranean Cruise, with Panat Cruise Line, runs from September 30th to October 9th, 2020. If you're interested in joining us, call 212-769-7009 or email travel at metguild.org. Visit metguild.org travel for further information. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.